great to be back with you as we continue to look at what it means to engage. Um, what does it look like to engage God? And what does it look like to engage others? And, and what's the process of that? And we have said that for us here at Kaioki, and really from a scriptural standpoint, um, to engage God is to exalt God, is to declare the truth about God. He is glorious. He is holy. He is good. Um, and then to engage engage people uh, is to demonstrate who God is uh, to them, to love them, to care for them, to serve and to minister, to come alongside. Uh, we demonstrate the person of Christ to others. And the process that that's done in any tangible, long-lasting way is called discipleship. It's making disciples. It's one of the last commandments that Jesus gave before he left the earth and ascended back to be with his, to the, the side of his father. And so we declare, we demonstrate, and we disciple. And as we wrap up this look, this, this series that has, has been going on um, throughout January and now into February, just wanted to, to hopefully be practical and look at, at, at what it means to engage people that don't know God. They may think they know God. They may uh, be convinced that they know God. And they probably know about God and they maybe have been exposed to him in some manner. Uh, but if, if you live in the West, if you live in America, per se, for for argument's sake, you probably know of the God that is associated with Christianity and you know the name Jesus. But if you live in the East, you might know of Krishna or you might know of many little uh, lesser gods, little g, who you worship. Or um, if you live in some far eastern island, it might be the gods of your ancestors. If you live in the Middle East, you, you worship, you, you know Allah. Um, and so the, throughout the world, you know, there's one constant that and Paul writes of this in Romans chapter 1, that, that people know of a God. They know of a creator. They can look and know, okay, somebody's behind this. Despite the best efforts of, um, of uh, humanistic science and, and our sophistication as we advance, so to speak, trying to shake any notion of a higher power. It just hasn't worked. And uh, the numbers fluctuate, but they generally stay in, in whatever the culture, whatever the time, whatever the century, uh, around 90%, maybe as low as 85% at times, but rarely less than that. Doesn't mean they, they, they walk with God and they have a personal relationship with God, but there's this understanding that there, there is a creator. So how, if, 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 we are, if we are followers of Jesus and we are convinced that he was truthful, 
when he said that he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father, no one comes to God, but through him, that he was truthful when he said that he and the Father are one. That he was honest, he, he was speaking plainly and uh, truthfully when he said, when you see me, you have seen the Father. So if that's the case, then how can we declare this great God by demonstrating who he is to people that either are not convinced or don't know? Maybe there are people on the planet that have never heard the name Jesus. Um, so in our day-to-day -day lives, what, what does that look like? And so here, here's where I want us to go. We're going to look at it. Just a tremendous passage. It's, it's, uh, I often, I've preached many times from John chapter 4 because it is such a beautiful example of, of engaging someone that is close but is not there, um, is close intellectually but um, is far away spiritually from God. And it's an encounter that Jesus has with a woman that interestingly enough would have been somewhat of a social outcast, um, even amongst a people that in the eyes of the Jewish, first century Jews, the people, the Samaritans themselves were outcasts. But in this group of outcast Samaritans, she would have been an outcast of, of them. So uh, we're going to look at it. We're going to start in, in um, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 4. And we're going we're gonna to initially read through verse 15. But we'll, we'll, you'll see that we're going to go somewhat further as Jesus' conversation with this woman advances. So let's go. Verse 1 of John 4. That's the Gospel of John. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or twelve noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living, living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the no-nonsense, the practical yet compassionate way that Jesus encountered people and, uh, and spoke with people and how reflective and representative that is of your heart. Help us to learn as we, have, um, as we study your word and we study this encounter. Open our eyes that we'll see and our ears that we'll hear. Help us to become more like Jesus in the, the way we engage others with the good news that is all about the Lord Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. Okay, so how, how are we most like Jesus when we engage people? How, if, if he was to say, here's a place to start, where would we turn? And I think this encounter of his with this Samaritan woman is a great place. Um, just kind of a little bit as background, it's, it's fascinating, is it not, that upon Jesus learning that the Pharisees were questioning and uh, perhaps a little uneasy, disgruntled maybe, with the fact that more people were coming to him and leaving this John that's referenced here um, early on in the passage. It was John the Baptist. It, it, it's got them agitated in some way. And so as a result, and I think the implication um, is that Jesus did not want to... Um, create a confrontation over his messiahship with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So um, he leaves. He leaves Jerusalem. And um, if you've ever seen a map of ancient Middle East, particularly first century Middle East, if you're traveling from Jerusalem, which was in Judea, the region of Judea, you'd be traveling north um, if you were the straightest direction, you, you traveled straight through Samaria. But as I mentioned earlier, the, the Samaritans were somewhat viewed as uh, lower level, how can I say this spiritually nice, lower level scum bucket dogs in the eyes of the Jews, especially the Judean Jews. And so they would avoid it. It was common to avoid traveling through Judea to get to Galilee, and you'd have to go a longer route around Samaria. But Jesus, he goes through Samaria. In fact, uh, we're not quite sure what the Apostle John means when he writes this, but um, he, he uses this phraseology that he had to pass through, he being Jesus, had to pass through 
Samaria. Well, most people didn't have to pass through Samaria. Most Jews, they wouldn't pass through Samaria. But Jesus had to. Um, now, it could be that John's just referencing, if you're going to go to go the straightest route, you have to go through Samaria. Yeah. But it also could be that John is saying, to be faithful to the Father, Jesus knew that he had to go through Samaria, that he was going to have this encounter with this woman. And as we're going to see a little bit later on, he, his presence there, his declaring of himself to this woman would lead to a significant conversion of this entire city of Samaritans, the city of Sychar, um, to God as they, uh, well, we'll see, we'll see. I, I, it's, a, it's a great, I wish we had a couple of weeks to just kind of really dig into this chapter. But here's what I want us to cover as we look at what, what it means to engage. I want to start off by giving you a couple of don'ts. We're, look, just, we're being very practical. Uh, some things not to do, okay? And then I want us to close with a couple of do's. What, what, okay, here's what we don't want to do, but what is it that we do to faithfully um, represent Christ, declare Christ to those that don't know him? So here's the first don't. And it's this, don't get tangled up in side issues. When the Lord is leading you to an encounter with someone, and, and it could be a family member, it could be a co-worker, it could be a friend, it could be somebody you've never met before. It could be somebody not only that you've never met before, but you'll never see again. Who knows, God, all kind of different ways that the Lord leads a discerning obedient child of his who has been commissioned to share the good news of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with those that don't know him. He can do that in any way he wants, and he does do it any way he wants. And the issue is, are we going to listen to him? Are we going to be faithful to him to engage? And so when you engage, don't get tangled up with side issues. And what, what, what I mean by side issues uh, are things like social issues. Um, you know, don't, don't get caught up in a political discussion, right? You may see somebody that is voting for a different person or is a part, member of another political party than you are, and you care very deeply about the direction of our country, and you believe... There's very, it's very obvious, and, and anybody that uh, cares about, uh, in this case, the United States, has to vote and see things just like you do. But they don't, and many won't. And so um, the problem that some well-meaning Christians make is they haven't decided for themselves the lordship issue. Who, who is the Lord of my life? Is a, is a political figure or a political party? Um, do, do, do I think that uh, the most important thing a person can know is not a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but rather it's voting for the right person? 
And uh, there are people that would rather win a political argument than share Jesus Christ. I've, I've experienced this. I've probably been guilty of this at some time in my life. Um, there have been times where politics played a huge role for me and, uh, and I, cause I care about our country and I pray for the direction of our country. Uh, I can remember being, getting into a political discussion with somebody, an older gentleman that I had, this is decades ago, but I had great respect for this man. Uh, I loved him and he loved me and, um, um, he invested much in me, and, but he was of a different political persuasion than I was. And we just, I thought we were, I thought we were having kind of a fun discussion over politics of the day. But what I didn't realize was internally he was getting more and more frustrated. And, uh, and, and he, he goes, well, the problem is you're an idiot. That's what he said to me. Well, I didn't think I was an idiot. I can be an idiot. But in that particular conversation, I didn't think I was playing the role of the idiot. But the, it, when he said that, it's as if the Lord in his mercy stopped me. And he shut my mouth. And he, 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 I, I, I thought, Lord, I can't honor you anymore in this discussion. So I'm going to shut it down. And, um, and I'm going to move on. And uh, I, I actually physically left where we were, not out of anger, and I didn't leave in a huff. I just said, oh, there's some things I need to do. And uh, that relationship, to me, it was a big deal. I don't know that it was a big deal to my friend, my brother in Christ, but... Um, it never came up again, and we, we loved each other, and we did all kind of things. We did life together for a while, and, uh, uh, and so, but, but, but what had happened in that moment to, to my, myself, but especially to him, is he, he, politics was a big deal. And, um, and I was not sensitive enough at the moment, in the moment, to recognize what I was doing to create and cause this, this frustration and this friction. So don't let politics, you've got to decide, do I want to win a political argument or do I want to represent Christ? Because you're, you're probably going to have to pick one or the other. Um, another social issue is, uh, is, is heritage. Uh, I mean, this woman that Jesus encounters, you'll notice early on in their conversation, um, well, even before the conversation, the Apostle John, as he set, gives us the setting, he tells us this was a pretty important place. This was located near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, heroes of the Jewish faith. Right. And so that's what this woman in 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 talking with the Lord, that's what she that's what she leans into. Right. Um, she asked in verse 12, are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and and did, as did his sons and his livestock. You see. Jesus is going to lead this conversation to a 
to himself. And she's early on even now trying to divert, right? And the issue is, is Jesus going to get caught up in uh, a discussion of heritage? You know, uh, uh, um, later on in, in verse 19, she talks about the different worship styles and places of worship that the Samaritans have as opposed to the Jews. And he's not buying any of it. He's not letting the conversation get diverted and, uh, because he knows what the most important thing is, and that's God. That's him. It's him. And, um, you know, um, social media is very pre- prevalent in our day. Um, I think there's always been a type of social media, but the technology that social media functions on in our day is so, so fast and so irretractable. You know, you, you, you post something on a, a media site and there's no getting it back, right? Once somebody's read it, there's no getting it back. Um, And ultimately, what you and I have to decide when it comes to social issues and uh, and getting caught up in them as opposed to sharing the good news is we have to decide whether uh, our personal preferences in this life, right, are more important than eternal issues are in their lives forever and ever, right? What are we going to base our conversations on? Eternity or the here and now? Um, and it's not that you, div- you avoid the here and now. Jesus doesn't avoid the here and now, but he's always leading to what matters, what matters the most, all right? So there's social issues. There's doctrinal issues that you can get sidetracked. You can get tangled up in. Uh, I mentioned uh, her, the, the woman's discussion in verse 20. Our, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then, but again, Jesus is not having any of it. Now listen, it's not that doctrine and what we believe about God is, is unimportant, but rather a person who is lost, we need to be biblical in how we perceive lost people. And Scripture tells us they are spiritually blind, just as we were before we were graciously saved by, by Christ we were, we, were, we were blind men and women spiritually. We, we didn't know, we didn't care for the truth. We couldn't perceive truth because we just didn't get it. And so, you know, don't try to undertake building a lost person's theology, which literally means the study of God. Um, don't try to build their theology about God before they know God because they'll never understand it until their eyes are opened and, and they, can, they can begin to see with spirit eyes. So, um, 
Don't get caught up on side issues, okay, on social issues. Here's the second don't, and that is don't be offended by their ability to sin. All right. You're in a conversation with somebody. Uh, don't get upset because they have adopted a lifestyle that you know runs counter to the scripture. Um, or they use language that you know is not honoring of the Lord. Uh, here's a fact for you. Sinners sin. <laughs> um, another fact. Sinners are capable of doing horrific, depraved, and shocking sins. Now, we, if you've been with us for a while, uh, last year we, we started a, a look through the book of Romans, and uh, in a short while we're going to return and finish Romans. But we, the opening chapter, the second half of chapter 1 of Romans, Paul describes this the, the consequences of trying to do life without God. And, uh, and, and he describes these things that are just, they're so relevant to where we are today. Our culture is saturated in horrific, depraved, shocking sins because we are a culture of sinners, of sinners. And, and remember another truth we learned in Romans, this in chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. Everybody but Jesus, you know. We are sinners. Some of us have been saved and our eyes have been opened and the Holy Spirit lives in us and we've been redeemed and we are being saved and transformed to the image of Christ. But we started at the same place where everybody else is. We were born into this sinful, lost mindset and, 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 and heart. And so, you know, don't get confused. Um, you know, ultimately, I, th I think what our culture is adopting to, adapting to, and especially the church in our culture, the Western church, uh, more so in America than Europe, because Europe's way past us in depravity. And what I'm going to describe, they've already been there. But in America, the church is going through this struggle because it's, it, it, it sees itself in general having less and less voice and less and less influence on our culture. You know, you've heard the term uh, that our society, our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Well, why? It's because of the diminishing influence of the people of God, the body of Christ. And what has caused, what makes it all the more painful is that Western culture, including Europe as well as the United States, our laws, our morals, our values and practices for centuries were shaped by the Judeo-Christian ethic, the, this biblical foundation that, that was grown out of a general acceptance that Scripture was right. And true, and we should base not only our personal lives on it, not everybody was there, but there was this general acceptance that we should base our laws and our, our, our uh, public lives on 
on God's word. And um, listen, there have always been in Western culture um, lost people. Uh, there were huge numbers of non-Christians. But it's just that as a society, there was this acceptance of a general sense of right and wrong according to the Bible. And in the midst of that, our societies were, and cultures were capable of terrible, terrible, ongoing, lasting, sinful choices. I, you think of slavery and racism and, um, and whole, the Holocaust and genocides. And, and you look and you go, how can that be? I mean, abortion, how could that come out of a culture that claims to be, quote unquote, somewhat Christian? But there it is. There it has been. But as a result, we look and we go, we think everybody, if you're born in the West, if you're born in America, you must be a Christian. But that's never been the case. The problem is, today, the vast majority of people no longer think biblically. Uh, they might wear bracelets that read WWJD. But they never ask, what did Jesus, Jesus actually tell me to do? They wear bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? <laughs> but they don't know the answer to that question. Because they don't base their life on Scripture, on the Word of Jesus, on the, the Word of, of God. And so what we, it, it really is, matters that we recognize is that when I'm in a conversation and I'm engaging someone in 2024, even in the South, I can no longer take for granted that if I quote a scripture to them, that it matters, or they even know what I'm quoting. Because so many people just don't care. A, A don't know scripture, don't know it enough to know you think this is authoritative. They don't, or they just don't care. It holds no authority to them and their life. So what can we do? You know, we've, we've looked at what we don't want to do. You know, we don't want to get caught up in side peripheral social issues. We, 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 we don't want to get offended. Now listen, not that people don't commit sins that are not offensive. They certainly are. But we can't let that override our conversation. There, there's a greater good here. There is something even better than the depth, the height of what we have to offer them is better than the horrific depths of their sin and their depravity, if that makes sense. So what can we do? Two things. One, we can meet them where they live. We can meet them where they live. That is exactly what Jesus did. First of all, he dared to go through Samaria, right? Uh, a, a very culturally, a very questionable act for his people, right? Why would he do that? And then, not only that, he engages 
a Samaritan woman in conversation, which not only has his disciples, did they get put off by this, but the woman herself raises the issue, why are you talking to me? This is not supposed to be happening. I'm supposed to be beneath you. I'm supposed to be too great a sinner for you to converse with. And she didn't mean because you're the Messiah. She just meant because you're a Jewish man. Why would you give me any time? It's because he meets her where she lives, even to the extent not shying away from her sinful choices in her life. But he, without great disdain, but just in the flow of conversation, we kind of... Uh, uh, didn't land here, but let's land on it now. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Talk about a roundabout compliment. You know, he's saying you are living sinfully. And at least you're speaking the truth here. I mean, you, you, you think you're avoiding it, but you're not. But he meets her where she, where she lives. This would matter to her. It's the exact same thing. A few weeks ago, our student pastor Jack preached out of Acts 17. And Acts 17 is just an absolute... Um, marvel of an, of, of an account of Paul in Athens. It's one of my favorite chapters. Uh, Paul is invited to go to Mars Hill, the Oropagus, where all the philosophers and great thinkers of the day, not just in Greece, but of the world, uh, migrated. And, um, and there's, this, there's this culture of pagan idol worship altars that are built on the Oropagus. And as, as, as Paul is gathered with them and is, is discussing matters with them, he calls to their attention. He doesn't, he doesn't quote scripture to them. In fact, what he ends up doing is quoting a couple of their own poets, unbiblical poets, unsaved poets, pagan poets to them in his, in his conversation with them. But the, the showstopper, what really grabs their attention is when he draws their attention to a, an altar that is dedicated to an unknown God. Now, I, I, I am con one, of, one of the reasons this is such a powerful encou encounter that Paul has with these men is because I'm convinced that in a lot of churches today, they would, if they didn't know it was Scripture, they would condemn Paul. For A, being there, for B, talking to these pagans, and for C, drawing their attention to an altar that's not, was not intended for the Lord God, the one true God. It's just to some unknown God, little g. And Paul uses that. He captures exactly where they live, where they think, how they process. Man, Paul engages them. Paul engages them. And I just wonder how many, how many encounters the Lord brings across your path with people who they may not think fit like a philosopher. 
and they may not make daily trips to a well to gather water, but they hunt or they fish or they're sports fans and they love to play sports or, you know, they've got kids and man, they love their kids and they love to talk about their kids or they've got grandchildren and oh, the, you know, you can, engage, you, you can meet them where they live. And that's exactly what Paul did in Acts 17. It's exactly what Jesus does with this woman. And, and, and in, he, um, we're closing. <laughs> I, I, this is how I want, I just have, how, how I want us to land. Um, you see, Paul was not intimidated by these learned experts because he, Paul, knew that the truth was on his side. God was on his side. And these men, Paul recognized the fact he would write of this, of this condition because he experienced it just like you and I have. These men were alive physically, but spiritually they were dead men. And um, they, were, they were captured by their selfish sinful desires and they did not have the ability to see the truth that Paul did because they didn't know Jesus. Exactly what Jesus knew about this woman. It's what he knew in the chapter before, chapter 3, when he encounters a learned, very kind religious man seeking, inquiring religious man named Nicodemus. And he follows a totally different approach than he does here in chapter 4 with this woman. Why? Because he meets Nicodemus where he lives. And he has more of a theological discussion with him. Because that's how Nicodemus thought. Which ultimately leads to the point. Here's, here's, the, final, here's the final thing you, you, we need to do. It's the final do, okay? Um, we do meet them where they live and finally do point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Here in, in, in this chapter 4 with this woman, watch this. Notice, notice the, how, how Jesus continues to lead the conversation. In verse 10, um, after the woman it raises an issue about the water, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, clearly he's talking about himself. She recognizes that he's talking about himself. He said, lady, if you knew who I was, woman, everything would change for you. Verse 13 after she, remember, she wants to make it about heritage and Jacob and his well. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thir thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will spring up to eternal life. Again, he, he said, I'm different. You need to know who I am. And then verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you 
am he. Now get this picture. I want you to get this picture. He leaves Jerusalem because he doesn't want, he doesn't want the religious leaders to begin to consider the fact that he's claiming to be the Messiah. He travels to Samaria, a very suspect thing to do, engages a suspect woman who's living a sinful lifestyle, and she becomes the first person in his ministry that he says, I am the Messiah. This woman. It's not a Judean Jew. It's not a Galilean Jew. It's this woman. I am he. I am he. You see, Jesus is this woman's only hope. Jesus was was those philosophers in Acts 17. He was their only hope. And he is our only hope. And the people that the Lord is going to lead across your path, you're just every day. For some of them, he's their only hope. Now, I say some of them because some may know him, but many will not. And the question becomes, not is Jesus capable and able of saving, and not is Jesus the only chance they have at being saved and being with God forever and being cleansed from their sin and having the eyes to see life and truth as it really is. But the question becomes... Will you share him with them? Will you open your mouth? Will you engage them? Uh, What a blessing it is to speak the name of Jesus to those that don't know. I pray that you and I will be faithful in our encounters. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the sweetness and the wonder of the gospel. May we never be ashamed. For it is your power, God, unto salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, may our lives be grounded in you and may we speak and engage in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thanks for being with us. We're going to wrap up. Um, this time together with worship and song. And so I invite you to stay and uh, for a couple more minutes and uh, look forward to being with you next time. God bless you.